Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Caleb, tomorrow is Cinco de Mayo. That makes today Cinco de Cuatro. <laughs> yes. Somewhere on <laughs> Newport Beach, the local elites are having a spite party to use up supplies in advance of Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> yes, they are. If you're not tracking out there, uh, we're referring to one of our favorite TV shows of all time, Arrested Development. Oh, yes. Even though that episode was during the much different season four, it was still very good. Yeah, it was good. Nothing compares to the first three seasons. Let's uh, make no mistake there. Oh, yeah. Um, it, but, you know, if you remember the show, it was constantly buried by Fox, who just tried and tried to kill it. And mm-hmm. finally, after three glorious seasons, they succeeded. However, Netflix brought it back by popular demand. Yeah. Man, that show gets better and better the more I watch it, and I do rewatch it often. Uh, I can remember watching the last episodes of season season three when they made so many references to the fact that they're getting canceled, uh, probably yeah. getting canceled. And Ron Howard, who narrates the show, if you're not familiar, just blatantly says at one point, <laughs> please tell your friends about this show. Yeah. <laughs> and while while we're not in danger of being canceled by our network overlords, please tell your friends. Tell about your friends this show. about this show. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, since today is. Cinco de Cuatro, or Cinco de Mayo Eve, however you want to look at it, we can't not talk about margaritas. That's right, Caleb, but there is one thing we can't not talk about, and that's not talking about margaritas. I don't know who you're trying to impress, Jason, but it worked on me. (laughs) That is incredible news. (laughs) High praise, Caleb. In honor of the wealthy Bluth family of Arrested Development, We are pairing our margaritas with the topic of millionaires. Yes, that's right. Millionaires, not thousandaires, not hundredaires, not dollar menunaires. No, but millionaires, millionaires. We're talking about those millionaire next door types. We're blessed to serve several of these types of people in our day jobs. Uh, And I can't wait to share some valuable information on some common qualities of millionaires and hopefully inspire some people to to reach financial independence. Yeah, these are the folks who kind of fly under the radar. You know, they're not the private jet types. They're not the Rolls Royce crowd. Um, more or less, they're they're the paid off mortgage type, the four hundred one k rock stars, the small yeah. business owners in your communities. Uh, those are the types that we're talking about today. Yeah, man, I am excited to talk about what it takes to become a millionaire and to give some practical tips to our listeners here. Yeah, that's the cool thing about this topic. You know, remember when we were kids and we dreamed of being millionaires, we were thinking about all the cool things that we could buy with our obscene amounts of wealth. But realistically, that was probably not going to happen. However, it's not outrageous this day and age to think that you could be a millionaire someday pretty practically. You know, you don't have to be born into money. You don't have to win the lottery. You don't have to be a celebrity. Uh, you don't have to invent the next big social media craze. Yeah, those those things might help, but they might that's, help. <laughs> that's right, man. So before we dive in deep into what makes up a millionaire, let's mix up some Ritas, Mister F. F. <laughs> Jason, guess what? What? This is my first margarita. What? 
<laughs> I know. I'm serious. So a, a couple of months ago, when we were laying out all of the um, the framework for these episodes, I realized I'd never had a margarita, and I so I've held off over the last <laughs> couple of months. I've never had one, and I have frequented many a Mexican restaurant. Well, I guess that makes sense. I think only the very swankiest of Taco Bells serve margaritas. <laughs> you know, it is a thing. Not around here, though. Yeah, I was I was actually just passing through Cleveland recently, uh, and I was just I just said to my wife randomly, I was like, "Hey, Joe, how many Taco Bells do you think there are in this uh, greater Cleveland area?" I found out that they have one of the fancy ones downtown when I was googling it, which is pretty cool. It's like a pop up nightclub Taco yeah. Bell. Uh, I've never been to one of those, but I have had a margarita. You've never ever had one. I, you know, I'm not even sure how it's possible myself. Quite frankly, I'm disappointed in me. Oh, well, let's hope that these margaritas aren't disappointing. Let's get down to it. <laughs> Jason, teach us about the margarita. <laughs> All right. Well, take a trip with me, if you will, way back to high school Spanish class, which I never took. I was a, a Frenchman. Uh, hmm. I took three years. Wow. I, I, I had four years of French, and I still remember... Well, maybe I don't. I'm trying to remember right now. <laughs> oh, je suis un animal. J'ai quatre pattes, deux petits oreilles, une longue queue et des dents pointues. And that's the beauty about French. You can just totally sound like a drunken fool and I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> oh. um, oh. Actually, uh, I took three years of Spanish in high school and I know when people are swearing at me in Spanish. That's about it. <laughs> I do not. And uh, let me tell you, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do remember your high school Spanish, you may not be surprised to know that margarita is Spanish for daisy. Mm. And uh, the daisy is a cocktail in its own right. It's uh, made usually of brandy, some liqueur and citrus. David Wondrich pointed me to that. We kind of talked about that in our last episode, driving Miss Daisy. Right. Yes. Yes. It, it was kind of a variation of the sidecar. Absolutely. Boy, you, you learn something new every day. I tell you These what. These cocktails are all connected, Caleb. The more we do this show, the more I learn about cocktails. And the more I know, I don't know anything about cocktails. <laughs> Same with finance. <laughs> <laughs> the uh but so yeah the the daisy is basically a sidecar if you notice those those ingredients and you listen to the last episode um but in jerry thomas the bartender's guide on how to mix drinks the bon vivant's companion that's funny that's french he explains that a brandy daisy is a cocktail made of gum syrup curacao liquor lemon juice brandy and a couple dashes of rum but the daisy itself is a forerunner to the margarita itself says david wondrich as well as the sidecar and the Cosmopolitans. The Daisy was before these drinks. Uh, and the <laughs> fact that the Daisy has existed for so long, and we've got references to it back further, it dispels many of the much more fun creation myths that surround the margarita. Because there's some cool ones about pretty ladies and guys <laughs> mixing them up for them in and, and, and fun places in Mexico. But it's most likely that a Daisy with tequila substituted for brandy was happening at least as early as Prohibition, and that's the original margarita. When a bunch mm. of Americans were secretly consuming hooch in Mexico, that's when they started to drink this kind of drink, and it started to gain popularity. The oldest recipe that I could find a reference to was was the Cafe Royal cocktail book from 1937. It it, the recipe that it references is identical to a margarita, but it's called a picador. Hmm. Um, and the Syracuse Herald in 1936 had a, a tequila daisy mentioned. So it's really likely that that's where a margarita came from. And it's funny because the 1930s is pretty recent history for cocktails. Like, yeah, they had become really, really 
famous or fun to do at the end of the 19th century. So this is a little later than all that. And being after Prohibition, it's a new drink, the margarita. So you're telling me that the margarita was basically something that came out of American Prohibition. Well, yeah, Probably. We're tied, we, every one of these cocktails is a little bit tied to Prohibition somehow. <laughs> it either got famous or got changed. Well, okay, so we've we've uh, gotten into American cocktails, obviously, but I kind of thought here for a second, are we going south of the border here into Mexico? But it sounds like um, maybe some influences, but really American Prohibition is possibly uh, where this all came from. It's definitely why it's more popular in America now. I, the Daisy, the Tequila Daisy, and obviously tequila-based drinks, tequila being distilled from the agave nectar yeah. plant. I don't know. We brought we brought it here and we made it our own. It seems like Americans are really, really looking for lots of different ways to uh, consume booze, especially yeah. during Prohibition. Well, and, and this uh, particular recipe, uh, right, through the IBA official guide, I guess the standard recipe we're using is 10 parts tequila, mm-hmm. four parts triple sec, which we used Contro this time, mm-hmm. and, which I like better than the regular triple sec. By oh, the my way. goodness. So much better. And three parts fresh lime juice. So 10 parts tequila, four parts, let's say, control or triple sec, three parts lime juice, and basically putting lime and salt on the rim of the glass. Mm-hmm. Shaking After it After shaking it over ice, garnishing. Yeah. There's not much to it. You know, we talked a little bit about this being my first margarita. Mm-hmm. And when I first took a sip, you said, what do you think? And I went, this is exactly what I thought it would be. <laughs> no yeah. surprises. I've never had this in my life. It is 100% exactly how I thought it would taste. They are who we thought they were. They are who we thought they were. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. It's Dennis not surprising. Green. But apparently there's some controversy because uh, our coworker and head honcho here at Blue Jay, Jason Burnell, was very passionate uh, in his explanation that a true margarita is made with agave nectar, not with triple sec. And I had to challenge him on that because the internet said that uh, a margarita was made with triple sec, but he comes from a, a Mexican family with a, with a long, long history of margarita consumption. Mm-hmm. And uh, he swore by the agave margarita, which we also tried, Caleb. I liked it. I liked it. That wasn't totally what I was expecting. In my opinion, it balanced out the the sourness of the lime a little bit. And I, I like the sourness of the lime, but that was a more balanced drink, in my opinion. I liked them both, probably equally. I would oh, agree okay. with you, though, that the agave nectar really did kind of balance out that lime more, took a little of the sour off. I felt like I could taste the tequila more in the traditional mixed up margarita that we made. Oh, for sure. But I like the, the, the agave nectar. It's kind of strong. It seems like it's pretty concentrated stuff. Now... Other Jason basically told us that we weren't drinking margaritas unless we had agave nectar, which... Yeah, he is passionate, and and that's the great thing about cocktails is people are passionate about their opinions on how they make them, and we've Mm -hmm. decided to be uh, okay with letting people enjoy things, so... Well, they're both margaritas in my book. I like Mm -hmm. them both. Uh, They are worlds ahead of Campari drinks, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Agave nectar, Contro, as long as it's not Campari, Caleb is good with it. Uh, that's so far, so far, that's the one that really sticks in my crawl. So, all right, so margaritas, uh, I think we agree. We like them. You should drink them. 
It's a good time, especially with summer coming up here. Oh, uh, yeah. I can see sitting out on the porch with some chips and salsa, consuming some margaritas. You know, there are worse things you could do. For sure. Uh, something that a millionaire might do. Oh, <laughs> yes. Say, Jason? I can see Oysters Rockefeller kicking back with his margarita, enjoying his piles of money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Moving on to the finance topic, we are talking about millionaires today. Yeah, man. Most of what we're going to talk about today is centered around dispelling some myths about wealth, some myths about getting wealthy, and some myths about wealthy people. So we want to encourage you guys out there listening in your quest to be financially independent. It's what it's what Caleb and I are doing, trying to become wealthy people. So we want to encourage you in your quest to be financially independent by by giving you some data that helps you maybe make some adjustments to how you're doing stuff so so you can enjoy life to the fullest. We have three sources that we're pulling most of our information from. One is the penultimate book on millionaires, The Millionaire Next Door. Thomas Stanley wrote it with uh, William Danko. It is a book full of awesome information about millionaires. Uh, It came out in 96, I believe. So some of the information might be a little dated, but adjust for inflation when we give you some of the data. Uh, The the book is still a gold standard and it's still eye-opening about what millionaires are. Uh, and kind of their their basic habits and how they got to there. Uh, but we're also going to consult. Uh, Ramsey Solutions did a national study of millionaires, and we got to bring up Papa Bear of personal finance uh, on this show. Uh, the Pope of personal finance. The Pope of personal finance, David R. Ramsey, the first, <laughs> uh, because he, he's been a, a big influence. But his, his group did a good study on it that gave us a little bit of data. But we'll also pull on our per- personal inter- interactions with many of our clients who are millionaires. We got dozens of them i would say yeah we know many millionaires right i know we've we've got that that personal experience dealing with those folks and helping them with their finances uh so hopefully that's a little bit of the different nuance that we bring to this conversation yeah um you know i i would say uh with the millionaire next door even if you're not super serious about becoming a millionaire you're not um you know going through the steps and all that kind of you're not you're not setting out to become a millionaire there's just some dang interesting stuff in there as far as how wealthy people do things compared to everyday people. There, there's good stuff in there. I think it's an interesting read regardless of what you're trying to accomplish. I, I'd recommend it based on what I've read. Yeah, I know a lot of the folks that are listening to us are probably very interested in becoming financially independent. I mean, most mm-hmm. people are, if you ask them, uh, is being financially independent good or bad? Most people will say good and want to get I'm after for it. it. I'm for it. I'm a fan. Uh, so I think I think the books and the, the references that we're going to make, uh, they're applicable to people in all walks of life in all situations, uh, not just the folks that that are that are hell bent on being just super rich. The it's goal, not a good way to start. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the goal. <laughs> it, it might not be the most altruistic reason for becoming a millionaire. Maybe not the best of intentions. <laughs> In our experience, I don't think we've had a lot of Scrooge McDuck types. No. <laughs> well, and we'll get into that when we talk about things that millionaires do versus things that millionaires don't do. You might be surprised at some of this stuff. Like you said, you don't have a lot of people who are born into poverty, who are dead set on becoming rich and not sharing the wealth with anybody and not helping humanity and mm-hmm. and their neighbor. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So there's seven kind of principles or, or factors, if you will. Right, Jason? Yeah. The, uh, Thomas Stanley and Danko highlight in their book seven factors and, and the Ramsey Solution Study pretty much 
copies these and updates them. And I can't blame them because they were really good things. These seven factors that we'll go through, we're going to kind of use that as an outline for how we discuss millionaires on this show, this episode. I think our personal experience helping people really echoes a lot of these. And we'll maybe give a little nuance as we go through it. But I'll just read off what those seven things are. The seven factors that millionaires have in common. Please, Uh, please read them. You have such a wonderful reading voice. Number one, (laughs) they live well below their means. Number two, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Three, they believe financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. Four, their parents did not provide them with economic outpatient care. We'll describe that a little more. Five, their adult children are economically self-sufficient. Number six, they are proficient in targeting market opportunities. Number seven, they chose the right occupation. So we're going to use these seven factors as a guide in our conversation today. Yeah, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, The first topic, which I think uh, is kind of one of those that seems somewhat obvious, maybe not, is the fact that they live well below their means. The the fact that it's it's not obvious, though, because when you think of rich people, who do you think of? You think of... People driving oh, well. super fancy cars with really expensive clothes, you think living of big in spenders. mansions. Yeah, and and the whole point of this uh, millionaire next door was to show you that the average millionaire is financially independent because they're frugal. What's one well, of the and main? The misconception could be how do rich people act versus how do rich people get there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's some interesting facts. I mean, the main deal with millionaires is that is that. On this in this first step that we're talking about, that they live well below their means. Some of them have really good incomes. Some mm-hmm. of them have average incomes. But the common denominator is that they're living well below those means. That they're living on maybe only ten to fifteen percent of their net worth annually, which is pretty crazy if you think about it, because that's not what the average American does at all. Uh, right. Most people, according to lots of studies, are living paycheck <laughs> to paycheck, so they're living at one hundred percent. Or or a hundred and fifteen percent of their means. Yeah, if you're if you're going backwards into debt, so mm-hmm. millionaires live well below their means. There's there's some interesting stats here. These are from ninety six, so try to adjust them. But but from uh, Thomas Stanley's book, so fifty in the fiftieth percentile, they never spent more than a hundred and fifty dollars on a pair of shoes. They're not getting fancy Allen Edmonds shoes for their bank job. They're not getting Uh-oh. the newest pair of Jordans. They're just buying good shoes that do the job. Uh, most millionaires never spent more than $235 on a wristwatch. That's I, that's not what you think of when you think of rich folks. You think of millionaires, no. you think of them spending thousands of dollars on watches. But it's funny that you bring up wristwatches because uh, I was reading about wealthy people and Bill Gates, which I think a, a lot of us in our generation, at least, when they think about the richest people on earth, one of the first names that pops up is Bill Gates. That dude is still rolling with a $10 Timex, even though he could own Rolex. You know, his Timex keeps time. That's what it's for. That's what it does. He's spending 10 bucks on a wristwatch. (laughs) He could just buy the company. (laughs) The point of all of that is to say that most millionaires (laughs) are frugal. Um, Most of them haven't bought a new car in two years. A quarter of millionaires haven't purchased a new vehicle in four years. So Mm -hmm. they're prioritizing frugality. Is frugality the be-all, end-all? If you are a frugal person, does that mean you're going to be a millionaire, Caleb? No, I don't think that you can save your way to riches, but saving is very helpful. What you do with your savings is really important. You can't just cheap out your way to being rich. True. You got you to do something with that money you're saving, for sure. Which brings us to the second topic, which is 
Millionaires allocate their time and energy and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Yeah. So that they're taking their energies and they're putting them towards things that are going to make them money. Something I read said that millionaires spend, oh, it's it's not a crazy amount of time, but like an average of two hours more a week than the average person on reading and self-improvement. And that would be like brainstorming, just self-improvement kind of stuff, learning about a new topic. Most of the millionaires that I know are, are folks that are financially independent. They didn't get there by accident. They took steps to research things, to learn about uh, ways to better themselves or to improve themselves. And we'll actually get to that in another another one of the factors that are related to uh, millionaires becoming millionaires. And that is that they they take advantage of market opportunities. But in this step, what, what we're mostly talking about is the use of time and energy. They spend some time planning. Most mm-hmm. millionaires actually spend time on their budget. Most millionaires know how much they spend on clothes and how much they spend on food. Uh, how much yeah. they spend at the grocery store. It's a common factor. They're not just not just guessing. They're not just spending whatever they have. Since since most millionaires are first generation wealthy, it's they've gotten there by being frugal. That was the first factor that we talked about. And then they they do things on purpose to better themselves and to better their money. Yeah. Now there are, and I think that we know some of these types. There are some people who don't budget that just are so insanely frugal that they don't they don't budget they just don't spend any stinking money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're really tight. Yeah. I get that. Those people don't usually spend a lot of time on the moving efficiently or or proactively with their money though. It's really common in our line of work to find people that do a great job budgeting because they don't spend any money on anything. They pinch pennies, they stretch pennies like crazy. But then they they just sit on their money. They have a pile of cash. They have a they have CDs from the bank earning one and a half percent because it's safe, and they're really really good savers. Mm-hmm. But they haven't taken that extra step, which is putting that money to work in ways that will better their increase their net worth, return them some some money. That's a, a drawback of being extra frugal. We see that that usually pairs. If you're really miserly with the money that you have you're going to be really uh, hesitant to probably risk it on something that could possibly go down, whether that's a new business venture or that's a an investment in the stock market or that sort of thing. Yeah. And that actually, you know, kind of plays into some of the other things that I looked at, which was uh, millionaires take risks. You know, you can be as frugal as can be. You can pinch every penny uh, and stretch it uh, to the end of the earth if you want to. And put that money into a money market or a CD that's earning nothing. You're not going to penny pinch your way to millionaire status, most likely. Um, now we've all met folks like that who have five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars saved up in cash. And the sad thing about that is, with a little bit of investing, maybe taking a little little bit of risk, um, you think about how much more they could have had uh, yeah. had they taken those risks. That's a common trait in the everyday, you know, next door millionaire is that they do take risk. It just is usually pretty calculated. Yeah, they're knowing what the pros and cons are. So but you think about taking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in a pile of cash that's like your your rainy day fund that you stretch that out over 10 or 20 or 30 years. And what you could have gotten in compound interest returns is tripling or quadrupling or quintupling that amount of money you have, depending on what market returns are, it usually is going to be a lot more. There's no 30-year period in the stock market that I know of that return negative. 
Um, no, so, between this and the last podcast where there wasn't a 20-year period even, <laughs> I don't think it's happened. <laughs> yeah, right. We've done that. So yeah, a common thread between millionaires is that they're they're spending their energy, their time, uh, doing some research. They're thinking about their money really is the moral of the story. They're not just letting it happen. They're, they're doing yeah. things on purpose. They're doing a budget. They're trying to find good deals on large purchases like a home or like an automobile. Um, or, or a business. Sort of or a business. Uh-huh. They're taking risks. They're researching investments. Something that was really interesting to me, Caleb, is uh, that most millionaires manage their investments themselves, hmm. but they don't trade frequently. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Investing is a must. We've already said it over and over that you probably aren't going to pinch pennies to the millions. Investing is one thing. You know, you look at uh, who a lot of people who kind of view as the the greatest investor of our time, Warren Buffett. His strategy is pretty simply buy good companies and don't sell them. Yeah, and hold on to them. So, hold so on. most millionaires are buying and holding. That's their strategy. Now, now they might they might hire a money manager or something. Most of them do not buy uh, individual stocks. They're not saying yeah. individual stocks are what made them wealthy. Uh, most of them are fully diversified. They believe in some sort of modern portfolio theory. So they have a diversified set of holdings so that they're spread out across all market segments and they just don't trade very often. The stats were were, were shocking that yeah. even a, a bulk of them haven't hadn't placed a trade at all in more than a year. Just those those day traders, they're mm-hmm. usually hurting themselves more. And I know we've talked about oh. trading a little on this show. Absolutely. I think uh, day traders are um, a lot like the guy walking out of the casino that tells you about the jackpot he hit on the slot machine. He's not telling you about the 50 other times that he goes in there and he loses all of his money. We hear from a lot of day traders and boy, we're hearing about it a lot now. You know, we've had some prospects that have called in and said, hey, look, I'm doing a great job in the stock market. I want some advice on this, that or the other, but I'm up 60% over the last year. Well, congratulations. It's not because of your stock picking prowess, most likely. It's because of what happened in the market. But we hear a lot of those folks that talk about that stock pick that they made or or why they're so much better than everybody else's stock picking. That's not your average next door millionaire. They are more focused on the big picture in general. Mm -hmm. They're intentional about what they're doing. They're focusing on the big picture, which in the investment world is the allocation. We know in our business that returns, you know, 80% of your returns are based on the asset allocation, not the actual stocks that you're picking. It's the asset allocation. Now, the other 20% makes a difference, but they're focusing on the big picture. Am I diversified? Do I have the right mix? Am I buying good stuff and holding good stuff? And, you know, what I found is, uh, you know, similar to what you had, you'd found too, that they're not day trading. They're probably buying index funds. They're paying a money manager maybe to manage that allocation, but they're really, you know, if you look at it over the last year, probably didn't make any sense to make a whole lot of trades, but they're focused on the big picture and the purpose for those funds. They are not trading. They're looking at how does this fit into the overall strategy rather than all the minute little details. Do they get caught up in all the little details, Jason? Yeah, no, I'm. They might a little bit, but I think that the the moral of the story is that they are involved. They know what their yeah. investments are doing. So since we're we're professional financial advisors, we help clients manage their money. It's the main thing that we do. I think that that folks see value in, in even though we do other stuff like risk management and and estate planning and and t- income tax strategy and all of that. The investment management is where where people see a lot of value in what we do. 
But the clients that I can tell, at least my my more affluent clients, a lot of them are usually delegators. They're like some of them are type A or or they at least mm-hmm. want to delegate the professional management of the actual investment allocation selection and the actual investments that you select. They want to delegate that to someone that is a little more professional or has a little more experience than them, but they're all in, they are looking at what they're invested in. They're asking questions about the type of investments that I've picked. We're having good conversations about that asset allocation, about those funds that we pick. That's something that distinguishes them from the folks that just, you know, they they retire and they're like, here's my 401k. I hope it goes up. I'm going to call you whenever I need to take some money out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a difference between those really successful folks, those, those affluent, financially independent clients that I know that I help. Uh, that they are involved, they care. Yeah. Even if they are delegating it to me to do most of the the nitty gritty, um, they're still involved and they still I, care. I'd put it this way: they know what they own and why they own it, but their job is not to be a portfolio manager. They know that that's not the best use of their time. Right. So yeah. outsource it to somebody who does that as a profession. Cool. So you talked about diversification, and I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up diversification, not just from a stocks and bonds allocation, but other investments. And one of the things that I found uh, in general is average everyday millionaires like real estate. They also like multiple streams of income. So when mm-hmm. we talk about diversification, they're not just counting on their nine to five. They've probably got a side hustle <laughs> or two yeah. or three. You know, they might have a rental property or something like that. So real estate is really um, a big one that kept coming up over and over and over again. And we see what's going on with the real estate market, too, here recently over the last year or so. Probably makes sense to have some of that real estate in your portfolio as a diversified income source, as an asset. I think that just plays into that diversification that you talked about. Oh, absolutely. I think that ties into the greater theme of of self-employment that we'll get mm-hmm. into. Most millionaires are self-employed. Uh, they work a job that they love, that pays them well. And a lot of people work a regular nine to five and they find that the best part-time job or self-employed job to get into is real estate. And if you like real estate and you like managing properties and that sort of thing, it can be a great one. Yeah. Um, but God bless you if you do. <laughs> <laughs> if you like dealing with shaking down people for rent. Uh, but there, but it really, the greater theme is that, that folks that are millionaires by and large work jobs that they love and they yeah. get there, they work their way to that. Uh, I got a, a friend of mine that's, that's doing this exact thing. He and his wife have great jobs. He's building a real estate empire on the side so that he can step out of his full-time job into real estate. He loves real estate and he's really good at it. Yeah. Uh, so that more power to you if that's it. But if you're if you're trying to start your own business, you're a, a physical therapist and you want to start your own physical therapy company, or if you're a you're an engineer and you want to start your own consulting firm or that sort of thing, by and large, that's what that's what millionaires end up doing. They're putting their time into kind of constructing their lives in a way that that gives them maximum enjoyment, but also provides them financially with a really good cash flow. Yeah. And that goes right into the next point, which Mm -hmm. is they believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. What's the aim behind all that they're doing? Yeah. Why are you doing what you're doing, Caleb? Mm -hmm. Is it so you can impress some people you don't even know? Uh, And sadly, I find myself thinking about that too often. Yeah. Millionaires don't care what you think. They care about being financially independent. And the studies show that Financially independent people are happier. They yeah. are less stressed out. They feel better about life, right? Well, if you think about it, I mean, if you're working a nine to five and things are great, but, you know, for whatever reason, they're not so great anymore. 
<laughs> and you're living paycheck to paycheck and you know your life is all about debt service, you're going to feel like you can't leave if things go south. That's one thing that I and I'm certainly not saying, hey, everybody, look at what I've done over the years. Any career change or job move that I've made, it, it may not have been about the most money up front, but where can I achieve financial independence? Where can I be in a position um, that is going to improve my life, my family's life, my client's life, you know, over the long run, knowing that if something goes south and you're in a position that you shouldn't be anymore, not being tied down to a massive debt burden, you can pick up and leave. The, the independence there is more important than the job itself uh, or, or the company that you're working for. Uh, I've always, you know, any financial decisions my wife and I have made has been about what keeps us the most flexible? Because if life changes and we know life will change, the whole reason for what I'm doing, for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I think that uh, maybe I'm thinking like a millionaire. I don't know. People, there are people out there that do it better than I do. But your example of the client that's building a real estate empire, why is he doing what he's doing? He's not trying to impress anybody. I know who you're talking about. He wants to be financially independent. He wants to do what he loves. And he is well on his way. Yeah, Absolutely. And, it, and it's really freeing. It's liberating when you start thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. It shouldn't be because you want to have neat status symbols like a really fancy car, or a really nice suit of clothes, or the fanciest Alan Edmonds pair of shoes to impress all your banker friends. It should be. Not that there's anything wrong with Alan Edmonds shoes. No, they're lovely <laughs> and great shoes that will last you a long time. Uh, but, but you really got to... If you... If you uh, kind of run things through that grid of why are you doing it? Like you were saying, you and your wife do, uh, it really will help liberate you. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have like an anecdotal story about cars. Uh, cars is a hot topic issue because you can overspend like crazy on a car. I get it. If you love cars, that's one thing. That's awesome. Spend your money on a car. It, just be just be realistic about what you're giving up when you are spending 50 dollars $70,000 on a new car. Jason, um, there are people out there who would like to change their job situation because of maybe a corporate change or something like that. And they can't because mm -hmm. they've got multiple car payments and, and they've, you know, they've got eight, $900 a month in car payments that, well, I could go to this other company where I think I'd be happier, but I can't, I can't afford that. Uh, because I owe $900 a month on this car. Is that really worth what you're giving up? And, and you know, from a freedom standpoint, from <laughs> doing what you love, from being happy, having yeah. a work, work life balance. I mean, I haven't been able to wrap my, <laughs> I haven't been able to wrap my before you it. make that decision. Right. And I know some people do. And for some people, having a really awesome car is a big priority. I don't get it, but man, more power to you as long as you're counting the cost, I guess. But, Geez, it's a depreciating asset that you just beat the heck out of. It's like a hammer. Like, why would you buy the best hammer? Buy a hammer that gets the job done so that you can do all the other stuff that you really love. That's how I feel about cars. Man, you're right though. It's all about it's all about why you're doing what you're doing. Keep that in focus. Are you moving towards what your goal is? When you are in massive debt, we got to bring up Proverbs 22, the rituals over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. That is mm -hmm. true. When you wrap yourself in a bunch of debt, you're a slave to that debt. You are you are putting yourself in bondage. So know what you're doing fits into what your goals are when you do it. Don't just it's not an easy way out. It's actually much worse because then you're stuck. Yeah, and you know, this is just commentary here, but we we just talked about the motivation behind the moves that you make and I think that 
Uh, it goes back to what we said before. We don't know a lot of the miserly types who are just set out uh, on getting rich and exploiting every person that they can to get to the top. I think motivation is huge. If your motivation is to be generous, to be family-oriented, to have real work-life balance, I know every company out there talks about it, but almost none of them practice it. You know, motivation, I think, plays a lot into it because if your motivation is pure, that you want these good things, you're going to probably be more successful and more likely to be that next door millionaire that we've talked about, rather than if you just set out purely based on money and amassing assets and, and greed. Yeah, it's really what is this about? And then when I read I read uh, Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, and, and I really liked a lot of the, the things that he said in there. I couldn't really reconcile it with the motivation for why. And his was is really hedonistic in the book when that's my biggest criticism of it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really just satisfying yourself more and more and more. Well, I tell you what, if you got family and a kids and if you're you're a Christian and you want you want to serve your community and you want to, you know, work towards that meaning of life to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then that's not a, a good motivation is not to just have more stuff and have more free time to, to serve yourself. It's to mm-hmm. serve others. But I tell you what, if you have that as your goal, it's a great motivation to put things in perspective. Do I want the $20,000 car or will the $8,000 car work out just fine for what I need and move me towards that goal? Will I be able to take that $12,000 and invest it or give it away or that sort of thing? That's really freeing and really empowering. And you start feeling like you can get some stuff done. You can move the needle on things. Um, so yeah, it's all about putting stuff into perspective with that one. Uh, that's, that's a huge one. If you your priorities are to be financially independent so you can do X or Y or whatever it is, you're going to be a lot more motivated to get that done. Then, yeah, than and that's a it's it. a lasting motivation. I think yeah. that's that's the thing. I think anybody could be mo- motivated in the short term for money or a reward, but we're talking about lasting motivation, and that's one of the characteristics of the wealthy that I read up on is that they're consistent. They follow through. They're persistent. They don't accept failure. That it's lasting motivation. It's not a carrot that you're dangling for a little bit of time, and then you you get that carrot, and then you're disenchanted. What's the next one, Jason? Yeah, the next one is interesting. Most millionaires' parents did not provide economic outpatient care. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> that's that's a term that uh, that Denko uses in the Millionaire Next Door. Basically, people that are millionaires were not bailed out by their parents. They did not get an allowance. Even though they had maybe a, a good family structure, that's another thing that we're not really going to touch on. But most millionaires have uh, have been married to the same uh, spouse for a long period of time. They have three point five kids, all that that stuff. They have a, they have a they have a stable family situation. That, that poor half kid. <laughs> that's really valuable in all of this. But but the average millionaire didn't receive economic boosts from their family. Did you know that most millionaires are first generation wealthy? They didn't inherit. They're not the Rockefellers. They're not the Carnegies. Who are those I, other I, I did not know that. People? That's a big number. Uh, 79%. 79%. Yeah, 79% yeah. of in- millionaires received zero inheritance at all. That's almost 80%. That's almost 8 out of 10. That's saying they got, something. They got nothing. They're first generation wealthy. I think uh, according to these stats, 21% received some inheritance. But only 3% received more than a million dollars in inheritance wow. of millionaires, which is crazy. And I can imagine that that 3% that received more than a million dollars might have received like 
500 million. You know, that can really skew the averages, those generationally wealthy families. But the stats on those people, they're a lot more likely to squander their money. Well, that's interesting, too, because, you know, when you say and, you know, three percent, only three percent inherited more than a million dollars around here, farming is is still uh, a big way of life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take much farmland, you know, to inherit a million dollars. That's different from inheriting a million dollars in a bank account, too. Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, those those numbers are interesting. What does what does that say about people who receive inheritances, Jason? A lot of folks receiving inheritances are disincentivized to earn money. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the stats are pretty outrageous that 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 people that have inherited money tend to have lower paying jobs. They tend to spend a lot more. I can't remember where it was and I don't have the the data, but uh, I read somewhere a long time ago and it stuck with me that that most kids spend the first like five years like you go out and you get married, you spend the first five years of your life trying to replicate the lifestyle of your parents that your parents had spent 30 or 40 years (laughs) developing. And you go into crazy debt. You get the house that's just like theirs. You get all the stuff. And then you realize that the more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the stuff that you have. Uh, And you just kind of like snowballs instead of realizing where you're at right now and kind of working up that way. So so people that don't inherit money are they tend to to work and they've, accumulate and value what they, they value get. it. Yeah, they value it because they've had something to do with earning that money. Yeah, Which, that goes right into why I'm not paying for my kids' college or saving <laughs> for them. Right, we now. talked about that in the daiquiris <laughs> and and uh, college episode. Yeah, but that that goes into the next point really well too, which is that millionaires' adult children are typically economically yeah. self sufficient. Yeah, what do the kids of millionaires look like uh, when they're all grown up? Um, it's, that's interesting to look at too, because it's not like the average millionaire is out there saying, you're on your own. I had to earn it on my own. Now Mm -hmm. you get out there and you do it all, all by yourself. Like most millionaires love their kids, right? Right, Caleb? Like you love, I I don't ask me. I don't know. I mean, I love my kids. (laughs) (laughs) The, so the average millionaire really values education for their kids. So they'll, they'll put money into that. I think the average millionaire didn't go to a private school, but most of them send their kids to one if they can, because mm-hmm. they really va- they see the value of education in their kids. So I think that was interesting because I get I get really um, negative when we talk about post secondary education and the way that 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 all is. But the average millionaire sees the future as a service economy, and they want their kids to be well uh, well prepared to take advantage of that. So yeah, they're going to they're going to encourage their kids to earn a bunch of skills that they can never lose. Um, the, so there's all kinds of jobs that, that, that these millionaires are sending their kids, uh, into that are, that are high paying that is service industry, like accountants, uh, tax professionals, attorneys, and that sort of thing. But they mm-hmm. also have a bunch of other, other, other characteristics that I thought were, I thought were pretty interesting for as far as how they educated their kids or, or, or talk to their kids. You want to go through some of those, Caleb? Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that they don't let their kids know that they're wealthy you know, I <laughs> we joke all the time. Growing up, we thought we were poor. Uh huh. And the, and we've said it on podcasts before. Um, now that we're you know we're in this business, we're a little bit older, a little wiser. We realize we were never poor. Again, I'm I'm not saying here that my parents were millionaires or anything, but I think that that's funny that they don't let their kids know about their wealth because you know, kids, 
they're going to exploit that to their advantage. My son all the time, if I've got a hundred bucks in my wallet and he sees me get that out to make a purchase, he goes, dad, you're rich. <laughs> he thinks I'm rich, you know, and I, I try not to, I try not to talk to my kids about money other than teaching them basic principles of money. But yeah, a little bit of mystique there goes a long way, doesn't it? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, we both grew up on an agricultural household. So, you know, yeah, if you have 40 acres and it's worth $10,000 an acre, you've got some money. It's not liquid. It's not um, liquid. But, you know, we had, we never had cable TV or satellites growing up or air conditioning in the house, uh, but I never went hungry. So I get like, we were frugal, uh, but um, not rich in, in the conventional sense, how you would normally think of it. I just think it's nice that that is a, a staple. Wealthy people know what it takes to become wealthy. So yeah. they don't tell their kids, oh, I've got a bunch of money or, or little Johnny, you're going to get the house when I die or, or little Susie, you're going to get my brokerage accounts. They're keeping that pretty much on the down low. They're letting the mm-hmm. will sort that stuff out. It doesn't, I, I, there's no research about how transparent they are because I think it's good to be transparent once your kids are older. But when sure. they're younger and you're training them up, they need to know the value of a dollar. They need to know the value of work. And yeah. the value of saving money and how to do stuff. So, so most, most millionaires teach their kids discipline and how to be frugal. They make them get a job uh, and that sort of thing. Something interesting that I read was they don't negotiate with their kids. What does when that you got, mean? When you got kids, this is really hard. I negotiate uh, with my kids every <laughs> night at bed. So yeah. what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> it, it's, it's mostly the, the fact that, so like my oldest daughter might be like, Oh, Roz got us a, a bike, so I should get a wagon or, mm. or, well, she got some, so I should get X. She got this, so I should get that. Uh, that, that is socialism. <laughs> exactly. We're talking about, <laughs> and I use that opportunity to talk about, they're like, it's not fair. Oh, and yeah. And I say, don't you tell me about fair. <laughs> what you're asking for is more grace. You're not asking for justice. Because yeah. if it was justice that you wanted, none of you would get anything. You don't want fair, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> You've earned zero, child. Uh, Brett Denko says, you were born on second base. Don't think for a second that you hit a double. Uh, I did that. <laughs> I love in my, that. In my uh, CFP courses, Brett Denko. If you're studying for the CFP, take Brett Denko's crash course. It was worth every dollar. Uh, but he got some nuggets like that. that he said he says to his kids, too. It's that's golden. You were born yeah. on second base. Don't think for a second that you hit a double. That's the kind of thing that millionaires are instilling in their kids. For sure. All right. The next one. Uh, millionaires are proficient in targeting market opportunities. This is trickier, Caleb. This has more to do with some skill and some some luck. Probably. Yeah. It absolutely takes some savvy looking at this because I think a lot of us in our careers, <laughs> we're doing the same thing, trying to find the the niche, the niche, yeah. the niche, however niche. you like to say it. Well, if you're French, it's niche. Okay. Sacré coeur. Either way, we're trying to find it. <laughs> yeah. Millionaires are overwhelmingly self-employed. I look, I, I, I mentioned this earlier. That's pretty crazy. A lot of them are professionals, so like physicians or dentists or or something like that. But they're overwhelmingly self-employed. And it's not all the things that you'd think of. And in our area and in our experience, a lot of them are they're agricultural. They're mm-hmm. farmers. Well, how do some farmers find their, their niche? Well, they're like, hey, you know what? I can find good deals on some equipment. If I'm going to be out looking for a new plow, maybe I'll buy four and I'll sell some and mark them up. Or maybe they just get into one type of grain. They're looking for opportunities. You use the machinery as a, I mean, there's a couple of local guys that are, that farm and they also um, sell farm machinery as a kind of a side hustle. And 
you know, it's that mentality that, you know, the farmers all go to the, you know, the farm auctions and stuff like that. And they, they see a piece of equipment going too cheap and they say, gosh, you know, if I needed one of those, that's a great deal. Right. Oh, okay. So they buy it and uh-huh. they find someone who needs it. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're looking for those opportunities, uh, and, and not letting opportunities pass them by. Yeah, that's, and that's true of most of these millionaires that were in this study, depending on whatever, it could be as, as, as basic as just the industry that they're looking to serve as a self-employed person. They're getting down to their niche. I remember meeting a guy that made hub modifications for those Can-Am spiders. Mm-hmm. That's all he did. He made his own business out of it. The guy was, he was in fabrication and then he just started doing those like custom hubs for Can-Am spiders and he grew a giant business out of it. There are so many of those kind of industries and, and, uh, Stanley calls them the dull normal kind of jobs. (laughs) They're not like it's no, they didn't invent Facebook, but they, they found a niche and they became the best at that thing and they grew an entire business out of it now. That yeah. they're they're millionaires because of it, and you don't notice them because they're wearing thirty five dollar Levi's and New Balance sneakers, and they and they're worth ten million bucks. Yep, you you know the example you brought up reminds me of a client that I have who was working at a steel factory and took the knowledge that that he had gained there and really thought, you know, hey, I can I can make these parts on the side for this hobby. Uh huh. And uh, all of a sudden that took off, and he was getting orders that he couldn't keep up. And, uh, you know, it was worth it to him to leave the 401k and all the benefits and go do his own thing. And he hasn't looked back. He's killing Mm -hmm. it. And uh, it's something that he loves. He absolutely enjoys the heck out of it. It comes through in his work. It comes through when he's talking to uh, clients slash customers. Um, You know, and he I mean, he's doing fantastic. He doesn't regret it. He loves what he does, which kind of goes into the next part, which is you know, they choose the right job. Yeah. These, these millionaires are not people that go to college just because and then try to just find a job. They're not people that are just falling backwards into other things. They're not the kind of person that's a bartender on accident. They're the kind of person that's a bartender on purpose because they're going to start a bar. They're yeah. going to open one up. They're going to make some money. They're, they are They are looking for opportunities and then they're capitalizing on them. So they choose a job that's probably going to be profitable. And let's face it, there are some industries that are more profitable than others. Mm -hmm. So you might be hamstringing yourself. And that's okay if your goal is not to be super rich. There are plenty of millionaires that went to school to be an art teacher that are an art teacher. And then they (laughs) save really well. You just save, you save 15, 20, 25, 30% of your income. And you're a millionaire when you retire. There's a way to do it that way too. But if your goal is to get there faster, you got to pick a job, a profession that's got potential to give you the kind of return that you want. Absolutely. What are some of those uh, those jobs? I know you had a list here of some, yeah. some different uh, potential career paths. Yeah, I made a list just because it's funny to think of the people that these guys interviewed in the uh, the millionaire next door. And here's some of the top most profitable self employment niches: coal mining. Physicians offices, osteopathic physician offices, dentist, optometrist, bowling center, chiropractor. Like, like a bowling alley? Like a bowling alley. Like run a bowling alley. Yes. All right. Chiropractors, drug stores, veterinarian services, legal services, farming, ambulance services, auctioneer, engineering and design. That's like consulting. Pest control services. You're going to be Dale Gribble and you're going to out there be, be out there being a millionaire <laughs> killing people's bugs. Um, welding services, 
uh, mobile home park owner. There, it doesn't really matter if you can find a niche that's going to have a good return on investment. That's where you need to go. Yeah, if you like it, you should love it. Don't just do it for the money. Well, you know, we talked about a lot of different things as far as characteristics of millionaires. We talked about those kind of seven basic principles. A couple other things I took away from it. One of the things that I I think really stuck with all of this was taking time out for personal growth. You know, that includes reading, exercising your mind, self-improvement, exercise. You know, one of the things I read is that most millionaires do not skimp on taking care of themselves. You know, their health and wellness is important to them. Keeping the body and the brain sharp is very important. Mm -hmm. Taking time to exercise your brain, brainstorming, planning out and mapping your day uh, ahead of time. So one thing that uh, millionaires don't typically do is sleep in. (laughs) They're up before everybody else in the house is up. They're mapping out their day. They're up two to three hours before the day starts. And it's already played out in their head before they go to work and they do their thing. Another thing is they're often contrarians, which I think this makes sense. When everybody's zigging, they're zagging, right? That makes sense. They're not afraid of criticism. If you think about people who have arrived, a lot of them have mentors. They have some kind of accountability. They're not afraid to ask for critique. That's really important. They have mentors and or they mentor others as well. You know, another thing is that they're, they're big idea minded. I'm not saying they don't think about the little things, but they're not obsessed with the little things. They are big picture focused. They're generous. We talked about that before. Yeah. So things that they don't do, they don't watch a lot of TV and play a lot of video games. Uh, they don't gamble. <laughs> they don't avoid reading. If you don't like reading, audiobooks are fantastic. Uh, that's yeah. another way. A lot of us spend time in the car. That's a great way to get some self-improvement and some learning in. They don't stay in their comfort zone, which is huge. A lot of us, if we've been in our job for 10, 15 years, we get real comfortable. Being able to, to work outside of that comfort zone, to get uncomfortable, that's how we grow a lot of times. Going back to the TV thing, I, I did pull a funny quote. Zig Ziglar once said that rich people have large libraries and small TVs. Poor people have small libraries and large TVs. Think about that a little bit. Ouch, my TV's real big. (laughs) One last thing that I'll say before we move on. Something that most wealthy people don't do. This is going to make you laugh in the business that we're in. Drugs. (laughs) No, they just sell them. Uh, (laughs) No, what, what most wealthy people do not do, or at least do not plan on doing, is retiring. Yeah. We'll talk about the idea of retirement in another show. Let's put that on ice, my man, because... That is that is interesting. You're right. You're never done. So that was fun. That, that was, was fun. fun. I Let's enjoyed all go it. Out and become millionaires by just plodding along and doing what we love and making good choices. Right. Right. Caleb, it's time for questions straight up. All right. Nate asks, is it true that anyone can contribute to an IRA? Okay, this is a good question, because technically anyone can contribute to an IRA, and I'm assuming a traditional IRA here. So the real question is, are contributions always deductible? And that answer is no. No! Uh, First, you need to have earned income, okay? So that's point one. If you have no earned income, you can't take a deduction. For example... Uh, When we get to earned income, 
uh, let's say you have $5,000 in earn income, you could take $5,000 and that's the max that could be deductible. Um, to be clear, earned income does not include things like interest, dividends, and capital gains. Uh, the next question is, do you have a retirement plan available at work? So let's say that you have no work retirement plan available. The max that you can contribute, the limit is $6,000 per year or $7,000 if you're 50 years or older for the catch-up provision. Multiply that by two for a spouse if applicable. Uh, in that case, no work plans available. Your deductions are fully, de- or your contributions are fully deductible regardless of your income. Now, here's where it gets more complicated. Let's look at someone who does have a retirement plan available at work. Uh, in this case, there are limits to what you can deduct. So, if you're a single person and you have a 401k at work, you can still contribute up to six thousand dollars or seven thousand, depending on your age. But depending on your income, a portion or all of it may not be deductible. So. For a single individual with an adjusted gross income of $66,000 or less, your contributions are going to be fully deductible, but it starts to phase out uh, above $66,000 up to $76,000 where it's completely phased out. So those same numbers for a married couple jumps up to an adjusted gross income of $105,000 being fully deductible and then phases out between $105,000 and $125,000. Uh, when it completely phases out. Now, if you don't have a work-sponsored plan, but your spouse does, the phase-out range jumps up to 198000 to 208000 You can make non-deductible uh, contributions to an IRA, but that's where it really starts to get messy. We would recommend some other uh, strategies uh, to go along with that. Honestly, Jason, that's probably another podcast, and it probably should be. I can see us doing a lot of episodes on IRAs. This is a great question. This is some complicated stuff that is a lot more complicated than it seems when you just Google it. So uh, definitely check out with your financial advisor, uh, financial planner. Make sure they know a lot about IRAs. But yeah, that that was confusing, Caleb, and I uh, know about it. <laughs> hey, so you might want to if, if you fall into any of these categories. Uh, so we didn't even talk about Roth. That's another situation altogether. You might want to go back, rewind this uh, part of the episode and listen to it again, or go out to the IRS uh, website, which is helpful too. We think we're probably a little bit more entertaining. But anyway, <laughs> consult with a financial advisor and your tax person. Good question. Really good question. And you probably started the ball rolling for uh, an episode or two or three to come. All right. Well, Jason, this is the part of the show when we invite our listeners to speak easy about whatever's on their mind. So this is a great place to share a recipe or a story or any thoughts, questions or emotional outbursts that you may have. Jason, did anything come into the speakeasy this week? Just one, Caleb, since the speakeasy is a secret place that I hope you can all find. (laughs) Uh, The content has gotten a little dried up. This week, Kevin says, I didn't know you guys had a podcast. Yeah, (laughs) it's here. We're here, baby. That's it. That that's it from Kevin. Thank you so much, Kevin, <laughs> for now knowing. I hope, presumably, that we have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully, listening. Tell your friends. <laughs> All right. Well, thank right. you for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you want your story featured on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to write us a review on iTunes and share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. 
We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. (laughs) 